to God. And we receive the benefit, and we testify of God's goodness through that. Questions about what we talked about last time? Okay. Well, today we're talking about the tabernacle, the dwelling place of God, as God traveled with the Israelites in the wilderness and into the promised land. Later on, the tabernacle will be replaced by the temple, but in Israel's early years, God dwelt in the tabernacle. What kind of tabernacle did God want Israel to construct for him? What does God's design for tabernacle worship show us about God? And how how does all of this connect with God's Son, Jesus Christ? Jesus says the Old Testament's written about him. The various rituals and signs of the Old Testament covenant were pointing to him, and we're going to see how that happens with the tabernacle. You'll want to use the handout, the chart, as you follow along with today's lesson. We're going to look at the different elements of the tabernacle, taking note. God's description of each part, then inferring the practical purpose of each element. There's like a basic practical purpose. And then we'll take time to think about and discuss what God was communicating about himself through that element of the tabernacle and what it also says about Christ. We're only going to look at four parts of the tabernacle today, though. There's a lot we could say about each part. We're only going to look at the four objects on the inside of the tabernacle building, and they're, they're listed on your sheets. We'll talk about those other elements in a later class. Let's pray before we go on. Father, you are holy, and we're going to see that in a multitude of ways today. You are exalted. Even the creatures that are around your throne are just so filled with splendor, and yet all they can talk about is your glory. God helps to see how glorious you are, and also to see your sweet mercy that was already on display in the tabernacle. Help me to be able to explain it, Lord. And move us in spirit to believe you and to trust you because of how you reveal your character to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Open your Bibles, please, to Exodus chapter 25. This is where we start to get our description of the tabernacle. After declaring God's Ten Commandments to the people of Israel, Israel's leaders later shared a fellowship meal with God on Mount Sinai. And after that, God called Moses up to the mountain for 40 days. 40 days, 40 nights. Moses didn't eat anything. He was just listening to God. And this is when God declares his design to Moses for the tabernacle. What happened at the end of those 40 days? mentioned it um, in last class, Golden Calf Rebellion. But before that, we're getting the instructions of the tabernacle. So let's go back and hear what God commanded. Starting in chapter 25, I'll just summarize the first nine verses. God tells Moses, you're going to ask the people, or you're going to tell the people that you're collecting a voluntary donation. Tell them that there are certain things needed for the construction of the tabernacle and its elements and ask them, anyone whose heart is moved to give, to give. Then we hear about the first element of the tabernacle God describes in verse 10, and it's going to be the Ark of the Covenant. So let's follow along. Look at verses 10 to 22. Verse 10. They they shall construct an ark of acacia wood, two and a half cubits long, and one and a half cubits wide, and one and a half cubits high. You shall overlay it with pure gold. Inside and out you shall overlay it. 
and you shall make a gold molding around it. You shall cast four gold rings for it and fasten them on its four feet. And two rings shall be on one side of it and two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. You shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark with them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be removed from it. You shall put into the ark the testimony which I shall give you. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold, two and a half cubits long and one and a half cubits wide. You shall make two cherubim of gold. Make them of hammered work at the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub at one end and one cherub at the other end. You shall make the cherubim of one piece with the mercy seat at its two ends. The cherubim shall have their wings spread upward, covering the mercy seat with their wings and facing one another. The faces of the cherubim are to be turned toward the mercy seat. You shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony which I will give to you. There I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, and from between the two cherubim, which are upon the ark of the testimony, I will speak to you about all that I will give you in commandment for the sons of Israel. Okay, that's God's description and command for the ark. As we do with all our textual analysis, let's start with some basic observations. You'll want to note some of these things down in the description. The word ark here, the word for ark here is aron, meaning box, chest, or coffin. So this first part of the tabernacle, the first thing God mentions is going to be a box, but a very special box. The box's dimensions are two and a half cubits long, one and a half cubits wide, and one and a half cubits tall. The common cubit is about how many inches? About 18 inches. We know that that measurement can vary depending on the region and, and the time period, but about 18 inches, about one and a half feet. So if we translate these cubit measurements into feet, it would be about three and three quarters feet long, two and a quarter foot wide, and two and a quarter foot tall. I have a, a picture of the ark, one um, artistic rendering of what the ark may have looked like. It's actually very difficult to find a picture of the ark that's even sort of accurate because of the Indiana Jones movie, the Raiders of the Lost Ark, so that's all you find whenever you go for Google Images. So it, the ark may have looked a little bit different from that, but I think that was the closest one to um, what the description we have here. So I'm going to show you a number of pictures today trying to capture the elements of the tabernacle. Just know that it could look a little different from what I'm showing you, but it gives you an idea. I have this golden box. <clears throat> this box is made out of what? Acacia wood, and then overlaid with gold, but it's made out of acacia wood. And actually, all the wooden elements, all of the wooden elements of the tabernacle are made out of acacia wood. Now, acacia wood probably came from the black acacia tree, which was common throughout Arabia. I think it's still common in Arabia today. These trees can be quite large, but they're also known for their thorns. You see a picture of those in the bottom left. Very tall thorns on their branches, gigantic. Perhaps the same kinds of thorns that were used to fashion the, cro the crown of thorns that Christ wore. So these, are, these are very large thorns. Interesting choice from the Lord. But acacia wood, aside from its thorny nature, was good for use in construction because it was sturdy, it was beautiful, and it was fragrant. So it was a good wood for using or to, to build with. The box is made out of acacia wood and then overlaid inside and out with pure gold. Ark features gold molding, four gold rings, for which two acacia wood poles covered in gold 
would slide into those rings, and they were never to be removed. What does God say to place inside the ark? His testimony. I think I heard a couple of you say that. And this is the testimony that God will give. The tablets, God's law. He says, put them in the ark. And that's why the ark is called what it is, the ark of the covenant, the ark of the testimony. It's where God's law is contained. Later on, two other elements would be put into the ark, a jar filled with manna, and then Aaron's staff that blossomed miraculously. They also would go inside the ark. So we've got God's law in the box, but notice the top of the box features a special lid called a mercy seat. Mercy seat. Mercy seat is actually all one word in Hebrew. A word for mercy also refers to, or can be translated, covering or pardon. And this seat is also made out of pure gold. The seat features two figures, cherubim. These creatures are to be depicted with their wings covering the mercy seat. Now what exactly are cherubim? Or what's a cherub? You may have heard that term sometimes, but we sometimes say, like a really cute kid, is cherub-like. Oh, you know, my, my teacher, I remember one of my teachers in high school, whenever she was kind of like mock affectionately referring to us, she'd say, my little cherubs. But that's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about cute kids. We're not talking about fat angel babies. That's another, another way that people refer to cherubs. You know, there's like those pictures, the paintings that have those, like those little cupid-type cupid uh, angels, chubby babies. I'm not talking about those either. What are the real cherubim? Well, the etymology of the Hebrew word is uncertain. So we can't break apart the name to say, oh, what is, this, what is it talking about? We know from the passage here that the cherubim have wings, but what else can we say about them? They're mentioned throughout the, they are mentioned a number of times in the Old Testament. There's actually a cherub guarding the Garden of Eden after Adam and Eve are thrown out, and it's the one with the flaming sword. But probably the most complete description we have of cherubim comes from the book of Ezekiel. The, in Ezekiel chapter 10, Ezekiel describes four cherubim in a vision that he has of the Lord in heaven. You don't have to turn to Ezekiel 10, but listen to some of the descriptions. Listen to some of the descriptions of the cherubim. Ezekiel 10.1 Then I looked, and behold, in the expanse that was over the heads of the cherubim, something like a sapphire stone an appearance resembling a throne appeared above them. Ezekiel 10.5. Moreover, the sound of the wings of the cherubim was heard as far as the outer court, like the voice of God Almighty when he speaks. Ezekiel 10.12. Their whole body, their backs, their hands, their wings, and the wheels, they have these wheels associated with them, were full of eyes all around, the wheels belonging to all four of them. Ezekiel 10.14. And each one, referring to the cherubim, had four faces. The first face was the face of a cherub. The second face was the face of a man. The third, the face of a lion. And the fourth, the face of an eagle. Then Ezekiel 10, 20 to 21. These are the living beings that I saw beneath the God of Israel by the river Chebar. So I knew that they were cherubim. Each one had four faces, and each one four wings. And beneath their wings was the form of human hands. Very interesting description. These descriptions actually might remind you of something else from the book of Revelation, the four living creatures, the four living creatures that surround God's throne, though those are described having six wings instead of four, so maybe they could be different. 
people have understood these descriptions from Ezekiel in, in slightly different ways. But to me, it sounds like we have creatures with four wings, four different faces, each one having four faces, human hands, and eyes everywhere. Others have understood the cherubim to be a combination of the uh, characteristics of their faces, of the different animals. That is, the wings of an eagle, the body of a lion, the face of a man, for instance. Still others see these creatures having only one face, and the one it says four, it's just referring to the four different creatures. One has the face of a lion, one has the face of a man, etc. So there's some debate on the, the actual description of these creatures, their physiology, but regardless, I think it's pretty clear that these are otherworldly, powerful, majestic beings who do nothing but serve God and give him glory. They are around or under God's throne, usually described as being under God's throne, and therefore many times in the Bible, God is described as being enthroned above the cherubim. So God's going to capture a small picture of that on the top of the ark. Two cherubim. And God's going to be above them. Now Israel must have known what cherubim looked like, or they, they were shown what cherubim looked like, because they, the they had to depict it on the ark. And not just on the ark, we're going to see later on that parts of the tabernacle have uh, depictions of the cherubim too. They're told to fashion two of them out of gold on the ark. Now these cherubim figures, they're looking in a certain direction. Where are they looking? They're looking towards one another and towards the mercy seat. Now, God also says that it's from the mercy seat or from above the mercy seat God will meet with Israel and there God will speak and give his commands. It's not mentioned here, but where in the tabernacle would the Ark of the Covenant go? In the Holy of Holies. So the, in, the inside of the tabernacle has two rooms, the holy place and the holy of holies, behind a, a curtain, a veil. The Ark of the Covenant is to go in the holy of holies. All right, so we know a little bit about this Ark. Let's ask some interpretive questions. First, how should we describe the basic practical purpose of the Ark? What's it for? Well, it's going to hold a testimony. Yeah, that's, that's part of it. And it's going to provide a meeting place with God. God's uh, chosen that the Ark of the Covenant is going to be where he meets with Israel. It provides, it does provide a place for the testimony, but also gives a place for God to meet with Israel. By the way, here's some uh, pictures of cherubim, interpretations of cherubim. This is like a kind of more medieval iconographic picture. Here's like a modern artistic representation. And uh, there's another kind of modern interpretation of the faces. But when we're just looking at the practical purpose of the ark, it gives a place for God to meet with his people. But thinking now about how God wanted the ark to be constructed, what does the ark say or show us about God? What's one thing? Yeah, Steve. Yeah. I mean, this is a this is a small version of Emmanuel, right? God with us. God is present. God is dwelling with his people. What else? Yeah, Rob. 
Yeah. Yeah, the construction of the ark and its placement in the tabernacle also emphasizes God's holiness. Even though God dwells with his people, he has not gotten rid of that idea of separation. God is set apart. Even the Ark of the Covenant is set apart. And within God's Ark is his law. God's meeting place, his dwelling place, is not separate from his law, his perfect standard. So the Ark shows us, reminds us, that God is holy. Also, the construction of the Ark is beautiful with the gold and with the cherubim, so it reminds us that God is majestic. But then the Ark has that special lid that mercy seat. It reminds us that God is merciful. God does not choose to meet with Israel on a seat of judgment or on a holy seat. I mean, it is holy, but that's not what he calls it. He calls it a mercy seat, a covering seat, a pardon seat. It's only on the basis of mercy that man is able to approach God. We see these things emphasized with the way the ark is constructed and its placement in the tabernacle. Now, how does this connect with Christ? How do these concepts, God's presence, God's majesty, his holiness, or his mercy, how do they connect with Jesus? Yeah, Roy. Yeah, so we'll talk, uh, just to repeat your comment, uh, you mentioned the lampstand and the bread, they're going to point to Christ. We'll talk about that a little bit later on, but here with the, the mercy seat and how that actually, that stands above the law, and it's the, and um, we didn't really talk about this in the description of the ark, but blood is sprinkled on the mercy seat, and that's part of um, what allows God to, con- to, to continually dwell with man. That was a merciful provision, but we see that in a much fuller way in Christ's own life, in Christ's own sacrifice. Really, God's presence and God's mercy are shown in a much greater way with Christ than even with the ark. If the ark is God with us in a small sense, Jesus is God with us in a much greater sense because he actually became a man. He took on flesh. He dwelt among us. We call him Emmanuel. present with us in a very intimate way, and then opening the way to God's intimate presence. Better than a once in a year passing through the veil into the Holy of Holies that the high priest would do. You remember that with Christ's death, the veil was torn in two, and the way to the ark was opened. God's intimate presence would not only in Christ's incarnation did he demonstrate a, a very intimate form of his presence, God's presence, but that through his death, he made it so that we could go right into the Holy of Holies. We could be with a holy God. He secured for us uninhibited access into God's most intimate presence, and he sent the Spirit. Jesus says, it's good for me to go away, because when I do, I'll send the Comforter. I'll send the Helper. God actually dwells with us, in us, his Holy Spirit. Christ sent his Spirit. So the presence of God is so much greater for us through Christ and in Christ than even in the tabernacle. And how did that happen? Through the merciful work of Jesus. Unfathomable mercy. God's righteous Son, a member of the Trinity, suffering, shedding his blood for sinners. 
a much greater display of mercy than even the mercy seat sprinkled with blood in the tabernacle. We could probably say more, but there's at least a, a sampling of how Jesus, in a greater way, represents the Ark of the Covenant. And, of course, Jesus kept the whole law, right? He didn't say mercy instead of law. It was perfect fulfillment of the law, but that, that mercy, because of his perfect fulfillment, the, the mercy coming to all of us who believe in Jesus. So we've looked at the ark. Let's look at the next element of the tabernacle, the table of the showbread. Just one little note there. God is, Christ is a greater representation of God's mercy and presence. Now we're looking at the table of the showbread. So look back at Exodus chapter 25. Look now at verses 23 to 30. The table is what comes next. Follow along with me. You shall make a table of acacia wood, two cubits long and one cubit wide and one and a half cubits high. You shall overlay it with pure gold and make a gold border around it. You shall make for it a rim of a handbreadth around it, and you shall make a gold border for the rim around it. You shall make four gold rings for it and put rings on the four corners which are on its four feet. The rings shall be close to the rim as holders for the poles to carry the table, and you shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold so that with them the table may be carried. You shall make its dishes and its pans and its jars and its bowls with which to pour drink offerings. You shall make them of pure gold. They shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me at all times. All right, we'll stop there. All right, let's make some observations on this part of the tabernacle. Table again. It's going to be made of acacia wood and overlaid with gold, pure gold. The dimensions, two cubits by one cubit by one and a half cubits, or about three feet by one and a half feet by two and a quarter feet. This table has a gold border, gold rim, and four gold rings on its corners for the acacia poles overlaid with gold to be inserted and so that the table can be carried. With the table are some golden dishes, pans, jars, and bowls to be used as part of putting things on the table and for drink offerings. But what stands out in this description here is the bread of the presence. The bread of the presence is to go on this table. When? At all times. Continually. There is never supposed to be a time when there's no bread of the presence on this table. Now, the King James translates the bread of the presence as showbread or shoebread. The word used for, for bread, the word used along with bread here, translated presence or show, literally, literally means face. But it's one of those words that can be translated a lot of different ways because it, it can be figurative. And it can mean things like presence or countenance or showing that which looks, etc. But it has the idea of face. This is like the bread of the face, the bread of the presence. But whose presence, face, or showing is connected with this bread? I would argue it's not the worshipers, it's not the priest, it's not man, but it's God. This is the bread of God's presence, the bread of God's face. We get a little bit more information about the bread of the presence in Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 24, verses 5 to 9. You can turn there if you like, otherwise you can just listen. Leviticus chapter 24, verses 5 to 9 says this. Then you shall take fine flour, 
and make twelve cakes with it. Two tenths of an ephah shall be in each cake. You shall set them in two rows, six to a row, on the pure gold table before the Lord. You shall put pure frankincense on each row, that it may be a memorial portion for the bread, even an offering by fire to the Lord. Every Sabbath day, he, that's the priest, shall shed it in, set it in order before the Lord continu continually. It is an everlasting covenant for the sons of Israel. It shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place. For it is most holy to him from the Lord's offerings by fire, his portion forever. All right, let's make a notice a few more things based on that, that passage. It mentions that there are 12 cakes, 12 bread cakes. Why 12? 12 tribes. Of course, one for each tribe. And these bread cakes are to be continuously on the golden table. But when are they replaced? Every Sabbath. And what's done with the old bread? It's for Aaron and his sons to eat. So it's not just we toss out the bread. No, they actually eat it. It's their portion. It's part of their portion along with a number of the other sacrifices. It's how, how they get food. It's part of how they get food. So the bread is part of the priest's portion. All right. Let's come back to our chart here with those other categories and let's interpret What's the practical purpose of this table? It's to hold the bread. Hold the bread and some other, uh, some other implements. It's for holding the holy, holy, holy bread. But what's the practical purpose of the bread? Yes, it is offered to God, but ultimately it's for whom? It's for the priests. Practically, this bread holds, or this table holds the bread which is the priest's food. Now, what does it show us about God, though? What does the table show us about God? An ignorant observer might think that this bread was being offered to God to eat, much like food was offered to the various pagan gods in ancient times. They offer the food to the gods, the gods eat it, and then, or they get their sustenance from it, and then the, the priests of the gods would eat it. But God is in no need of food. So this bread is not a statement of God's need for man's bread. But rather, I would say it's the opposite. It's not that God needs man's bread, but that man needs God for his bread and as his bread. Because this is the bread of God's presence. God's presence, I would to say that God's presence is the priest's bread and all Israel's bread. God himself says later on in the Pentateuch, Deuteronomy 8.3, or rather Moses, speaking by this Holy Spirit. He humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. This bread offering, it is a kind of an offering, but this bread offering was an expression of worship from Israel that said the following. We not only trust you, God, to provide us with our necessary bread, but we acknowledge that you and your presence are more necessary for each of the 12 tribes than bread itself. This is a continual reminder that God would provide their bread and that God was their bread. So by commanding this table and its necessary bread, God, again, showed himself to be majestic. This is a gold, beautiful table. 
but he reminded them, reminded Israel and the priests that God is the provider. God is Israel's life, and God is Israel's satisfaction. He is your bread. His presence is your bread. Now, how does this connect with Jesus? Pretty obvious, right? Because Jesus says himself, what? I am the bread of life. He's not really saying that much different than what God was saying in the Old Testament. God says, you need me more than bread. Jesus says, you need me more than bread because I'm God. I am your bread. John 6.35, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. Jesus is the greatest provision of God for us. Better than daily sustenance, God provided us with salvation. Or to say it better, God provided us with God. God provided us with himself. Jesus is right to call himself the bread of life. He is more necessary than bread. He is more satisfying than bread. He is our provision. He is our portion. He is our sustenance and our satisfaction. It's true of God even in the Old Testament, but exemplified even more in Jesus Christ. Questions so far about the ark or about the table? Yeah, Bill. Um, good question. What does the manna stand for? Do you mean in the ark? Um, the pot of manna, like the, well, a number of these things are, are described in the terms of memorial. So they're, they're for remembering. And there's, a, there's some symbols that go along with that too. But God sustaining Israel miraculously with manna was to be remembered. And that's why it was put into the ark, saying, look, the, God showed that he's able to provide for you and that, um, kind of like the table of the showbread, that he's more necessary to you than even, even you securing food because he can provide you manna. So I would say that the, uh, the pot of manna was for remembering what God did with Israel in the wilderness. Other questions? Along with that, of course, the, the rod, the blossoming rod, was another memorial. It's like, there's no other priest acceptable to me except the ones that I designated, which is Aaron. That happens a number of times with Israel. You've got some people who are like, I think I can be the priest too. And God's like, let me show you. Let me show you that nobody else can be the priest. He does it with the rod. He also does it with, um, we'll talk about it a little bit later on, with the incense. People try to offer up incense instead of Aaron. And they're all offering it. It's like more than 100 people. And God just burns them all up. And then he puts the incense censers as part of the bronze altar. They become plating for it. Because he's like, don't forget. Don't forget what happened. Anyways, yeah, Steve. Right. And then people will say, well, gold speaks of righteousness and symbolic of righteousness, but it's like it's all these things spiral out yeah. into um, many theories that really don't bring us closer to God, but just make us feel a little better. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, I appreciate you offering yeah. uh, that explanation. Yeah, I, that's a worthy point, Steve, and I'll just repeat it that 
We don't want to go too crazy trying to interpret the different elements of the tabernacle. Like you said, trying to say, well, what does the wood and the gold mean? Does that gold refer to the divine side and the wood refer to the physical side pointed to Jesus? And yeah, the, we, we do want to keep it safe. We know that gold is beautiful. We know that gold is valuable, and that certainly emphasizes God's majesty. But uh, unless we have some, some better indicators of what, what the gold might represent or other elements might represent, we want to not go that far. Are you going to say something, Rob? That's, an, that's also a good point, Rob. We know that these things are reflections of God and of Christ, but we just don't want to go too far in trying to fill in, the, filling in those details. Let's move on. We've looked at two of the golden objects, one in the holy, the holy of Holies. The table would be in the holy place, the other room in the tabernacle. But now we have two other golden objects to look at. And the third one is the golden lampstand. That also comes in chapter 25, the last section of it, verses 31 to 40. Look at verse 31 with me. Then you shall make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand and its base and its shaft are to be made of hammered work. Its cups and its bulbs and its flowers shall be of one piece with it. Six branches shall go, up, go out from its sides. Three branches of the lampstand from its one side and three branches of the lampstand from its other side. Three cups shall be shaped like almond blossoms in the one branch, a bulb and a flower, and three cups shaped like almond blossoms in the other branch, a bulb and a flower. So for six branches going out from the lampstand. And in the lampstand, four cups shaped like almond blossoms, its bulb and its flowers. A bulb shall be under the first pair of branches coming out of it, and a bulb under the second pair of branches coming out of it, and a bulb under the third pair of branches coming out of it, and the six branches coming out of the lampstand. Their bulbs and their branches shall be of one piece with it. All of it shall be one piece of hammered work, of pure gold. Then you shall make its lamps, seven in number, and they shall mount its lamps so as to shed light on the space in front of it. Its snuffers and their trays shall be of pure gold. It shall be made from a talent of pure gold with all these utensils. See that you make them after the pattern for them, which was shown to you on the mountain. Okay, let's observe. The lampstand, made entirely of gold. Not golden wood, all gold. It's actually one piece and made to resemble which plant? It's a certain kind of tree. Almond tree. Actually a picture of an almond tree over there. A little bit it does look a little bit like a, a cherry tree or a cherry blossoms. It has beautiful light colored flowers. I don't know, uh, you can, might not be able to see the picture that well. <laughs> I don't know if it Looks exactly like the almond tree, but certainly the lamp does look very tree-like with its branches and, and does have a number of flowers. The stand is to have six branches, three on each side, and each branch is to feature three cups shaped like almond blossoms with corresponding bulbs and flowers. Now these terms, blossom, bulb, and flower, they're translated a little bit differently depending on the version of the Bible, and what they exactly mean is a little difficult to determine. Here's one interpretation in the bottom right. You see kind of flowers coming out of flowers in that, in that lamp with cups at the very top. So that's one interpretation of the bulbs and flowers. Lots of cups, lots of bulbs and flowers, but how many lamps? Seven. Seven. And the lamps are to shed light in front of them. This 
lampstand is to include corresponding snuffers and trays, snuffers for um, putting the candles out, or the lamps out, and trays for catching the wicks when you trim them. And everything is to be made out of a talent of gold. Talent of gold, the exact weight of a talent of gold is debated, though it was likely about 75 pounds. So a good amount of gold going into this lampstand and its elements. Before we interpret this, though, let's look at another passage related to the lampstand a couple chapters later. Look at Exodus chapter 27, verses 20 to 21. Talk about how this lampstand is lit. Verse 20 of chapter 27. You shall charge the sons of Israel that they bring you clear oil of beaten olives for the light to make a lamp burn continually. In the tent of the meeting, outside the veil, which is before the testimony, Aaron and his sons shall keep it in order from evening to morning before the Lord. It shall be a perpetual statute throughout their generations for the sons of Israel. Okay, a couple more observations. What is the fuel for this lampstand and its lamps? Olive oil. Using olive oil from the light, and the people of Israel are going to give it. The lamps need this oil because the lamps are to be continually burning. But what exactly does continually mean? Does it mean it never goes out or that it's always on in certain recurring periods? Well, notice verse 21. Aaron and his sons, or when are Aaron and his sons said to keep the lamps in order? From evening to morning. In other words, what period? Nighttime. Darkness. Evening to morning, that would be when the sun goes down and when the, er, the sun comes up. So the lamp is to be lit at night. So it's not that the lamps are constantly, literally constantly burning, but they are to be lit every evening and put out every morning. Second Chronicles 13, 10 to 11 likewise indicates that these lamps were to be maintained and to burn at night only. But why leave the lamps burning at night if there's no activity in the tabernacle? because a lot of the activity of the tabernacle will be done by the, by the evening. It might be a little bit, maybe in the early evening hours, but certainly there's not stuff happening there all night. Why keep the lamp, the lamp continually lit? God must be saying something. All right, let's interpret. What's the practical purpose of this golden lampstand? To provide light. You need light inside the tabernacle, especially when it's dark. Now, what is God saying about himself in the lampstand and in its light? Well, you may notice a parallel between the lampstand and something else that Israel saw that did not burn in the day, but it did burn at night. What was that? The pillar, right? A pillar of cloud during the day, but a pillar of fire at night. Remember, God led Israel by this pillar of fire when, when it moved at night, and it was also a sign of God's presence. During the day, it was a pillar of cloud. God's light provided a reminder of God's presence, but also it was, a, it was to serve as guidance for Israel. It helped them to see where to go. Certainly we know that God is often associated with light and lamps in the scripture. God said, let there be light, even in the very beginning of the Bible. God's word is a lamp unto our feet, as the psalmist says. But I want to share a couple other references to get us thinking about light and lamps and God. 2 Samuel twenty two twenty nine says this, For you are my lamp, O Lord, and the Lord illumines my darkness. Psalm 90, verse 8, You have placed our iniquities before you, our secret sins, in the light of your presence. 
And then Zechariah 4, verses 1 to 5 and verse 10. Zechariah has a vision of a lampstand with seven lamps. Then the angel who was speaking with me returned and roused me as a man who was awakened from his sleep. He said to me, what do you see? And I said, I see and behold a lampstand, all of gold, with its bowl on the top of it, and its seven lamps on it with seven spouts belonging to each of the lamps which are on, on top of it. Also two olive trees by it, but on the right side of the bowl and on the other on its left side. And then I said to the angel who was speaking with me, saying, what are these, my lord? So the angel who was speaking with me answered and said to me, do you not know what these are? And I said, no, my lord. Verse 10. For who has despised the day of small things? But these seven, that is the seven lamps, these seven will be glad when they see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These are the eyes of the Lord, which range to and fro throughout the earth. So when trying to think about why did God want this lampstand continually lit during the night? I think we can make a somewhat cautious inference based on how God, light, and lampstands are discussed in the rest of the scriptures. What is God saying with this golden lampstand? What's one thing that he shows about himself? Yeah, it's a, it's a reminder of God's presence. I think we can make that inference based on how it's always there. It's always lit at night, just as the pillar of, pillar of fire was guiding Israel at night, and it would be lit at night. So God is reminding them, my light is on. I'm with you. My lampstand is lit. What else? Well, remember, it's all made out of gold. It's a beautiful lampstand. made to look like a tree of pure gold with seven candles. It must have been dazzling. This is a reminder of God's majesty, his beauty. Those things in his tabernacle are meant to be beautiful and glorious to point to God's beauty and glory. I think because of the association with God and light, this lampstand is also a reminder that God is the illuminator. God is the illuminator, both as a compassionate guide, but also as a holy judge. If you trust him, he will show you the way, even in darkness. But if you sin, his light will lay bare the dark hypocrisy of your heart, even if you hide in darkness. This golden, glorious lampstand reminds us that God is the illuminator, reminded Israel that God is the illuminator. How does the lampstand connect to Jesus? Well, again, the connection is pretty direct because what did Jesus say? I am the light of the world. Just as God in the Old Testament associated himself with light as a guiding light and as a light of inspection and judgment, so does Jesus. John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. If you desire rescue and guidance, if you want to know how to get to heaven, if you want to know how to be with God, Jesus is the light. He is the golden lampstand. He will illumine the path of life to you. He is both the light and the life, the clearest depiction of God's truth. But if you walk in hypocrisy and sin, remember John's vision of Jesus in Revelation chapter 1, verse 14. He described him this way. His head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. 
Jesus when speaking to some of the seven churches that were unrepentant in sin or had people unrepentant in sin, he reminded them, I'm the one with the eyes of the flame of fire. Jesus' burning gaze will find out your sin. God's light, Christ's light, will unveil your sin and you will not escape the judgment. All judgment has been handed over by the Father to the Son. Jesus is the, uh, a greater manifestation of this concept. God is the illuminator, both to guide and to judge. So we have three of the golden objects accounted for. One more that we'll talk about today. This one comes in Exodus chapter 30. It doesn't come next in the sequence. We're going to skip over some things for now, but look at Exodus chapter 30, and we'll look at the final piece inside the tabernacle. I do want to discuss the tabernacle structure itself, but we've got the lampstand in the holy place. We've got the table in the holy place. We've got the ark in the holy of holies. But one other object in the holy place is the altar of incense. A couple different versions of the altar of incense there. They have their rings at different um, design in different ways. You can see in the pictures. But here's what Exodus chapter 30 says on, about the altar. Verse 1. Moreover, you shall make an altar as a place for burning incense. You shall make it of acacia wood. Its length shall be a cubit, and its width a cubit, it shall be square. And its height shall be two cubits. Its horns shall be of one piece with it. You shall overlay it with pure gold, its top and its sides all around, and its horns. And you shall make a gold molding all around for it. You shall make two gold rings for it under its molding. You shall make them on its two side walls, on opposite sides, and they shall be holders for the poles with which to carry it. You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. You shall put this altar in front of the veil that is near the Ark of the Testimony, in front of the mercy seat that is over the Ark of the Testimony, where I will meet with you. Aaron shall burn fragrant incense on it. He shall burn it every morning when he trims the lamps. When Aaron trims the lamps at twilight, he shall burn incense. There shall be perpetual incense before the Lord throughout your generations. You shall not offer any strange incense on this altar or burnt offering, or meal offering, and you shall not pour out a drink offering on it. Okay, we'll stop there. Make some observations about this altar and its description. Once again, we've got something made of acacia wood, overlaid with gold. So all the elements are either made of gold or overlaid with gold inside the tabernacle. Its dimensions, one cubit by one cubit by two cubits, or a one and a half foot square, three feet high. It has horns at each corner, gold molding, two golden rings on its two sides. Now some interpret that as two on each side or just one on each side. I think one on each side makes more sense because God described four the other times, but you see in the pictures that some interpret it as more than two rings. And these two rings, once again, are going to be for acacia poles overlaid in gold. Now where does this altar go? Precisely. I heard something? In front of the veil, in the holy place. So not just in the holy place, but right in front of the holy of holies, right in front of that dividing veil, right in front of the ark, and the mercy seat. Right near God's very presence. Now the altar is for burning incense. When is the incense to be burned? This is another thing that's to happen continually, perpetually. Specifically, two times 
each day, in the morning and at twilight. So the lamps and the incense, their activities happening with them at the same time. In the morning and in the evening, at twilight, when, when day turns into evening, something happening. For the altar of incense, it's that incense is offered. It is burned. Incense burned in the morning, incense burned in the evening. It is a perpetual act. There's always to be incense burning before the Lord. And notice the warning at the very end of this section. No strange incense will be acceptable on this altar. Nor shall any other kind of offering be offered on it. Just the incense that God specifically commanded is allowed to be burned on this altar. Later on we'll see that there's a prohibition against laymen creating their own incense of this same type. Actually, let's look at that section. What kind of incense does God command? Well, just a couple of verses down. Look at verse 34. And God says precisely what kind of incense they should burn. Verse 34 to 38. Chapter 30. Then the Lord said to Moses, Take for yourself spices, stacta and anica and galbanum, spices with pure frankincense. There shall be an equal part of each. With it you shall make incense, a perfume, the work of a perfumer, salted, pure, and holy. You shall beat some of it very fine and put part of it before the testimony in the tent of meeting where I will meet with you. It shall be most holy to you. Incense which you shall make, you shall not make in the same proportion for yourselves. It shall be holy to you for the Lord. Whoever shall make any like it to use as perfume shall be cut off from his people. A couple more observations. God's holy incense is made of equal parts stacta, anica, galbanum, and frankincense, pure frankincense. The exact identity of stacta and anica are unclear. Not quite sure what those are. Some say anica refers to the shells of certain sea snails. But the other materials are fragrant substances collected from certain trees and plants. And they're all, they all smell very good. Now something else is added to this mixture. Equal parts of these four ingredients, and then also salt. Yeah, salt was added. These materials are to be beaten very finely, and then likely heated on a sensor, a plate, with hot coals beneath. This is not one of the types of incenses where you can just light it on fire itself. You need to have a heating element underneath it that's going to cause it to burn and make its fragrance. So this incense would have produced smoke and a strong but pleasant fragrance. What warning, uh, and we notice the warning here, no layman, no Israelite is to make this incense for themselves. What's the penalty if they do? They'll be cut off, which means? Some interpret cut off to mean exile, but there are some contexts in the scriptures where cut off definitely means death. So I think we should understand it in that way. To be cut off from your people means to die. So they are to be put to death if they make this incense for themselves. Okay. So what's the basic practical purpose of this altar and its incense? Well, what does incense do? It makes it smell nice. It's producing some smoke. It makes it smell nice inside the tabernacle. But obviously, there's more to it than that. What does this incense say? And what does this incense and this incense altar say about God? Well, again, this is another beautiful, beautiful piece inside the tabernacle, made all of gold, pointing to God's majesty. 
And the set-apart nature of this altar and its incense points us to God's holiness. But what about the incense itself? Well, surely this offering of incense is not like the incense that the pagans would offer. Because many ancient religions, and even modern religions, especially in the East, they use incense as an offering to various gods and spirits. As if the gods themselves needed or enjoyed the smell of incense. God does not crave or need the smell of incense at all. So why the incense then? What does it represent, if anything? Some point to the use of incense in the book of Revelation for help. Revelation 5.8 says this. When he had taken the book, this is the lamb. I believe it's the lamb there. When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell before the lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Hmm. Revelation 8, 3 to 4, another angel came and stood at the altar holding a golden censer, and much incense was given to him so that he might add it to the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar, which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up before God out of the angel's hand. Okay, so does incense equal the prayers of the saints? necessarily. Revelation may be using the symbol of incense in its own unique way. And even Revelation 5 and 8 do not use the symbol the exact same way. Revelation 5, the incense is the prayer of the saints. Revelation 8, the incense is offered with the prayers of the saints. So that's not necessarily, incense does not necessarily equal the prayers of the saints. I suggest the incense of the tabernacle actually points to something else. Because notice again, the incense produces a pleasant aroma and God commands that incense to be burned every day, twice a day, continually filling the tabernacle with smoke and aroma. What else is said to produce a soothing aroma to God and was required every day? We haven't mentioned it. It's coming. Uh, or, I think I heard it somewhere. Roy? Right, animal offering. And not just in their tabernacle, but if we go back, um, think of somebody like Noah. When he comes out of the ark, he m makes an animal sacrifice, and it says it produced a soothing aroma to the Lord. Animal sacrifices, like incense, which produce a good smell to God. Furthermore, listen to part of God's command for what the high priest must do on the Day of Atonement, associated with the altar of incense and incense. Leviticus 16, verses 11 to 14. Then Aaron shall offer the bull of the sin offering, which is for himself, and make atonement for himself and for his household, and he shall slaughter the bull of the sin offering, which is for himself. He shall take a fire pan full of coals of fire from upon the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of finely ground sweet incense and bring it inside the veil. He shall put the incense on the fire before the Lord that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that is on the Ark of the Testimony, otherwise he will die. Moreover, he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the mercy seat on the east side. Also on the front of the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. So we're not going to get into the whole Day of Atonement ceremony. But you remember, the Day of Atonement is one day a year. The priest actually goes into the Holy of Holies to sprinkle blood on the ark itself. But going into the Holy of Holies required a shield 
of sorts. What was the priest's shield? The incense. It was to produce a cloud that would cover the mercy seat. The incense, the burning incense would prevent the priest from dying while he carried out his duty. So again, we see a parallel between the incense offering and the animal offerings. The burn offering, the sin offering, the guilt offerings, they're all about providing man with what? A shield. A covering. Not really a shield. More covering, I think, is more appropriate. It was to cover the sin. Cover the uncleanness. So that God's holiness would not break out against that person. The incense functions the same way. It is a covering. It has a covering nature to it. So I suggest that the incense, if we think about well, what was God saying with the incense, it's to reinforce the same concept that God shows with the animal sacrifices. That is, that all Israelites, including the priest, they need a merciful covering from God, something to prevent God's holy wrath from breaking out against them. The incense is a symbol of that. It's a sweet smell in God's nostrils so that God's holiness does not destroy uncleanness covers that. But we should note, it's not the incense or the burnt offering itself that soothes God's nostrils. God doesn't necessarily need or care for those particular smells. In fact, I'm not even sure if burning animal flesh smells that good. But, and there are times where people offer these things to God and he rejected it. He says, don't give me any more of those offerings. I hate them. Because what is it about these offerings that's actually sweet to God? about the person's heart, right? It's about their belief and their love for God. It's about their faith. This is why when we look at the, uh, the Hall of Faith and we talk about Abel and all those types of things, people who offer sacrifices, they're commended for their faith. That's what was so sweet to God. And that faith demonstrates itself through obedience and through prayer and through thanksgiving. So I think it's right for Revelation to associate incense with prayer because really incense is associated with faith. <laughs> Offering these sacrifices is associated with faith in God's mercy. So the altar of incense, I would argue, was a sign of man's need for covering. It was a sign of God's holiness, not just in its set-apart nature, but that in the fact that man needs to be covered. There needs to be something fragrant before God so that his holiness does not destroy. Well, that was certainly true in the Old Testament. But what about Jesus? How does this idea, how do these ideas connect with Jesus? Jesus is never called incense. However, if we take the idea of the incense offering and the animal offerings, their whole point was to provide covering, right? And that's what Jesus has done. And he doesn't need to do it every day or to continually offer himself, but he did it once and for all. So that that one sacrifice, that one fragrant aroma was offered up once and for all, and there's no need for more sacrifices. The altar of incense like the altar burnt offering, was all about our need for covering. And Jesus, the high priest, and he was the only one who was allowed to offer these things, right? The incense or the animal sacrifices. He provided a once and for all sacrifice, sacrifice that permanently soothed the Father and soothed God's holiness. 
the aroma of Jesus' righteous life, his death on behalf of sinners, and his faith in the Father forever cover those who believe in him and take Jesus as their high priest. Yeah. Well, uh, let me repeat your comment, and then I'll give you my answer. Am I saying that the incense represented in Revelation as the prayers of the saints has no relation to the tabernacle and to the, the intent there? I don't think that incense always necessarily equals the prayers of the saints, but I do think that there still is a connection. As I said, incense, the idea of covering, is associated with faith, and prayer is one outgrowth of faith. When, um, when a priest was offering incense before the Lord or when he offered any animal sacrifice, he was demonstrating faith that God would show mercy on behalf of that sacrifice. He said, God, I believe you, you provided a way for me to be covered. This is your way. I trust in that, and therefore I'm offering it to you. So it's not that the, the prayers and the incense in Revelation is totally disconnected from the tabernacle. I just think it's one outgrowth of it. And so that's why I think it can be said that the prayers are the incense, but also that the prayers are offered with the incense, because the incense is associated with faith, I would say. We're kind of running short of time, but if you have uh, other things you'd like to ask about or make comment about, please see me afterwards. We've seen four elements of the tabernacle, but there's still a lot more here that's really rich that shows us more about God's character and also connects to Christ. We won't talk about it next week, because I want to stay on, uh, stay on task with the rest of the Sunday school classes, but the week after is like our free day because it's like the end of the end of the quarter, end of the year. So we can do, we can go in a, a number of directions. So I'm going to come back to the tabernacle at that time. We'll discuss some of the elements that we haven't talked about, like the bronze altar, the priest's garments, the, the structure of the tabernacle itself. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for revealing yourself. We thank you for the covering of Christ. Lord, you were constantly emphasizing in the tabernacle that you are holy and you are set apart and that man cannot casually come to you. It must be in your prescribed way and it cannot be deviating at all from your way. And yet, God, you also wanted to emphasize that you are accessible, that you will, you will provide mercy to those who come to you, that you will allow your presence to go with them. In a limited way, we see all that in the tabernacle. But in a greater way, we see that in your son. Thank you for Emmanuel. Thank you for his fragrant offering. Thank you for his holy life applied to us and how he makes us holy. Lord, bless the rest of the service today. In Jesus' name, amen.